Hello, this is Dr. Jason Lee, and on today's episode, we're going to talk to Pauline Ng. I'm saying your name right. I always get that. Yes. Or, okay. So, um, Pauline, uh, why don't you tell us about yourself and, uh, you know, um, why you're on today? Sure. Um, so, I'm a pharmacist by training. Um, I own, I guess, for, for a layperson to understand, it's a large-scale sterile compounding facility. We're governed under the College of Pharmacists, um, and we basically provide sterile injectables to hospitals and clinics across the country. And part of that includes immunotherapy. Um, yeah. so, okay, sorry, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the immunotherapy business, I started, I think it was four years ago through various oh. acquisitions and partnerships. And it was the first time, um, at least to my knowledge, that there was really pharmacist involvement with immunotherapy. And you can probably elaborate if, if you know differently. Um, but I, I found that there was a really big gap in the customer service, obviously, first and foremost, and secondly, the transparency and what was actually being provided. So something I'm very passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, for those that don't know, allergen immunotherapy or allergy shots or hyposensitization uh, is really the process of um, injecting someone uh, with the gradual buildup of uh, whatever they're allergic to that's clinically relevant uh, to try to mitigate the body's response to those allergens. Um, it's a slow sort of gradual process, but the uh, at the end of the day, we're both trying to uh, reduce symptoms uh, for the patient to the relevant allergens, as well as disease modify or reduce future risk of uh, other adverse things happening, such as the development of uh, allergic asthma uh, as a prime example. Um, so this is something that every allergist does in his practice or her practice, and uh, it's, it's in our wheelhouse of uh, tools that we use. Um, you know, one of the discussions I have, Pauline, with my patients, anytime anyone decides to do allergen immunotherapy, is we have a discussion about the risks, benefits, and alternatives of allergen immunotherapy. And generally, we try to be as evidence-based as possible in the consent process. A lot of us use formal written consent as well. Um, anaphylaxis can occur. And I think if you do enough volume, uh, eventually every allergist sees uh, uh, you know, a handful or so of allergen reactions, uh, allergic shot reactions in a year. And, and as I was mentioning, that oftentimes our medical trainees who are learning allergy, this is their first exposure to you know, treating anaphylaxis and recognizing anaphylaxis. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm doing a lot of talking. And the reason why, you know, I really wanted to talk to Pauline is uh, uh, oftentimes a lot of the allergic, uh, allergy shot uh, reactions are actually due to human error. So one of the key things I had is, you know, um, uh, as an owner of a, uh, you know, compounding pharmacy uh, company who provides allergen immunotherapy to allergists, uh, what are some things that uh, you know your company does or other companies do to try to mitigate this human error element? It's a it's a good question, especially with immunotherapy all looking the same after you've seen hundreds and hundreds of them in a day. So I think it really boils down to two things. The first one being people. So uh, at least for for my company, our minimum competency to hire is a bachelor's in science, and we of course also have pharmacists. We have chemists, microbiologists, but I think that this part is very important because with immunotherapy, there's a lot of the theoretical aspect, the calculations, and all of that relates to safety, um, of course, in the final product. Um, the second part is the processes, so rigorous documentation, 
um, several checks from the time when we receive the order to when it's made, um, to when it's packaged, to when it's finally checked, and then barcode scanning throughout that process. So that's what Rev does to, you know, really mitigate the risk um, of human error in producing. Yeah, and I think a lot of, um, you know, people don't realize that uh, simple things like uh, color coding of vials uh, has actually substantially reduced the uh, human error component. Um, and then the, I guess in the compounding process, you know, a one uh, dose dilution mistake, it can re really be a difference between a, a thousand times and in uh, the concentration. Um, so uh, are there like steps like this that, uh, that you, are there, and maybe even additional steps that you plan on taking, or are there more things that we can do at the, at the process uh, to try to reduce risk? We have approximately six to seven checks in the process, which are all completed by different people. And the, the different people portion is very important. So as much as we want to automate that process with barcode scanning and computer systems, I think unfortunately we can never take out the human element because exactly as you're saying, when you're doing the serial dilutions, one, one missed dilution or one skip in dilution, et cetera, can really result in patient harm, especially during the buildup phase. So, um, to answer your question, it's several steps. It's having a pharmacist in two of those steps and a bachelor's of science in, in other portions and utilizing barcode scanning. So the wrong antigen doesn't get mixed. And then that visual verification at the very end to make sure, because you can see with the color gradients as well, with dilutions. So all of that goes into checking. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the color gradients. It's one of the you know questions that made it to our Royal College of Physicians uh, allergy immunology exam. Uh, you know, there was a mislabeled uh, allergen treatment set. You know, how are you going to figure out the concentration? So that was actually an exam question that one of my uh, you know former trainees brought up to me. And uh, you know, you mentioned the color, but it's, it's not quite obvious to you know a nurse who may be working casually part time to you know even notice that there's a, a gradient in color difference. Um, you know, one of the uh, in errors that, you know, was, you know, actually occurred in my own uh, office in practice is that we had exactly the situation where, uh, you know, the uh, patient didn't actually get their serum somehow. Uh, and it was just like a mix up in, in the box, you know, uh, it was a honest human mistake, but some of these things do happen and, and basic steps, like even just checking a patient's name and confirming that it's that patient or even going so far as to check the date of birth, because I have a very common name, you know, Jason Lee, every, everyone has Jason Lee uh, as a friend. Um, so it, it's good to check the, these kind of things. Um, in terms of the uh, labeling, I like the uh, barcode uh, scanning. Um, is that something, uh, and I think it's actually quite uh, unique to, uh, to your, your company. I have not seen that in, um, in some of the other treatment sets that I used to use. Is that something that you thought of or, uh, you know, is this just part of the process or? I wish I was that brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually have a, a software system where our operator scans the set and then they scan the antigen and they need to match. So if the antigen is not in the set, then it, it doesn't get made, it stopped right there. For now, it's an internal procedure. I would love to see an external procedure. So if I can just comment for a moment on the other, other side of our business, we do uh, business with hospitals and there we implement like GS1 compliant 2D barcodes, which everything is coded to Latin expiry. I would love to see that in the future of immunotherapy. Great. So I somehow have the EMR 
talk to our system. Now, uh, some of the um, allergy trainees, especially uh, for people starting out, uh, allergen immunotherapy is not like, um, you know, it's, it's frankly not very well taught in a very standardized or evidence-based way. You know, we had uh, a couple of years back when we were doing the, uh, you know, the quote unquote standardized doses of PNU, uh, which is actually not really a standardized dosing at all. Uh, we we're, you know, discussing uh, weight to volume uh, based dosing uh, instead as well. Um, these are things I think, you know, potentially increase the risk of error. Um, how do you reconcile all of uh, the different uh, variations and different allergies practice and things like that? I think you're very good at asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> very good at asking questions that I feel very strongly about. Okay. Um, and, and very completely honestly, uh, when I started the immunotherapy business, that was one of one of the things I was very shocked by was the variability between all the different practices and trying to see how to be politically correct about this. There are allergists that care about evidence-based prescribing, et cetera, and you're one of those few. I shouldn't say few. Um, and there are other allergists who really want to leave the onus on the company that's making the immunotherapy. And I strongly feel that we really should be transparent. And if there needs to be additional education or training, then that needs to be done on the allergist part because uh, it's just a matter of safety. So when we had the immunotherapy business, uh, just from the very beginning, we had orders with allergists not indicating at all dosing. So they would order, for example, tree, dog, cat, and they'd send us the order. And I would go back to them and say, well, what would you like for dosing? And this was a really big challenge I had very early on in the business. Um, and it was very mixed. So what we did was a standardized approach where we would come up with an order form if they were really not interested in learning how to do dosing. But even that was kind of cumbersome. And I think that speaks more about the industry being so old and a bit, it, it needs a bit of a makeover. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think the Canadian Society of Allergy Clinology, you know, puts out this uh, document every year. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. It is quite uh, different and, and nuanced from the European uh, as well as the American. Uh, they, they all, every country seems to have their own um, sort of uh, practice parameters and approaches. Um, you, you know, it, this may be a loaded question, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, Pauline, but do you think that there needs to be more standardization that's centralized, like with Health Canada? Like in the U.S., they're really trying to do a push to make everything evidence-based uh, with only FDA-approved, uh, both reagents and, uh, and uh, serums. Is, is that, do you think, the, the answer to these questions, or is there some other answer that uh, maybe we should consider? Well, my professional opinion is that there's obviously the manual and those recommendations, but I think we need to reconcile that to the practical truth, which is what is actually on the market. And that's the, that's what I grapple with when dealing with PNUs. I don't think there's enough consistency there. And we're already talking about non-standardized extracts, which is right. kind of a crapshoot anyways. Yeah. Like, like you think like Health Canada or someone should just force people to make it actually a standardized unit, like, like the other standardized reagents we have available, like for example, grass or something. That is ideal. I would yeah. love to happen. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, on, on that same line of thought, uh, in terms of uh, testing reagents, again, a lot of fellows and newly to practice, um, 
they kind of see uh, reagents as being interchangeable and you know not even paying attention to the concentration in their skin test kits or you know they don't understand things like what's aqueous or what's versus glycerinated um, you know is this uh, should should people be using the same testing reagents uh, you know if they're ordering from a specific company for example so for example you know if I use like uh, you know uh, Reef Pharma's uh, allergen treatment kits should I be using Reef Pharma's um, skin tests or ALK, uh, vice versa, things like that? It's a good question. And I did my research and I couldn't find anything. Okay. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> you, would, you would have the answer if the evidence was there. So I think we're lacking evidence there. I'd, I'd be curious to see somebody conduct a study and actually compare the different brands based on the skin test results and, you know, clinical results from their immunotherapy. Yeah, it is interesting because there was, you know, mm -hmm. there is uh, definitely a paucity of data and, uh, you know, one of the interesting quirks that uh, a lot of people don't know is that uh, the dust mite uh, has a bit of an antigenic drift in North America versus European, uh, the standardized dust mite. So the concentration of DP and DF in the dust mite mixture, for example, uh, the two Farinae and Terranisius, uh, are actually different from North America and Europe. And so in Europe, uh, they tend to have, uh, you know, more of um, uh, esterase activity uh, which can you know actually affect uh, pollen uh, like tree pollen and grass pollen allergens but in North America that problem is uh, less uh, prevalent uh, and and you don't need to make adjustments based on that so it's it, all these little mi minute uh, details that I think a lot a lot of people uh, are not aware of um, your allergen treatment sets and uh, you know in, in terms of glycerinated versus aqueous. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because that's a question I get asked a lot from, uh, you know, new, new new practice pay, you know, people. Sure. So I think it's actually a complicated question to unpack. Uh, allergy, like I said, is such an old, immunotherapy is such an old uh, industry um, that there are some practices that are kind of outdated. So allergenic extracts in Canada, unless they're allum precipitated, are glycerinated, kind of period for the most part. Um, a lot of the manufacturers have phased out the aqueous formats of the bulk extracts. I'm not, I'm not sure about the US if that's 100% the case, but back in the day there were, there were aqueous extracts and there were glycerin extracts. So there was that option. And then in addition to that, there was an option of the diluent. So there were glycerinated diluents, aqueous diluents, and then there's HSA. So our recommendation and kind of the norm is normal saline with phenol. Um, and that's simply because glycerinated uh, treatments that just cause a lot more discomfort for the patient. And then HSA, we have the issue with Jehovah's Witnesses, but HSA should be more stabilizing. Yeah, uh, so for those that don't know, it's, uh, it has albumin, which is a common protein uh, in, in uh, human, but I think the ones in the allergen diluents are actually porcine. So they're from uh, pork albumin, uh, if, if, if I'm correct. Uh, from at least that's what some of the labels I've read uh, said uh, when you look at the uh, monographs and stuff. Um, okay, in terms of um, new to practice uh, allergists, like, you know, uh, there's only a few and far between uh, sources of information. So unless you're uh, very motivated um, to, you know, learn this uh, on your own, um, is there, is this like something that you uh, help sometimes uh, allergists uh, through, like especially in their first couple of years of practice? 
Yeah, definitely. It's funny that you say that because uh, in the last year, um, we've had several new trainees reach out to me and I walk them through, or our company walks them through the ordering process and the difference between all the uh, concentrations and things like that. Um, I think we're moving in the right direction in general. The other day I had several allergists that are relatively new to practice, like within their first five years, uh, reach out to me and ask me a lot of questions about concentration and dosing. And it was as a result of some CEs that they were attending. So I'm glad to see that movement. I haven't seen that before. In the last yeah, it's great. It is really good. And you know, a lot of the um, um, allergen immunotherapy uh, companies that provide them, uh, you know, they're, they tend to be smaller companies, uh, like they're not like the uh, Merck's or Pfizer's or uh, of the world. So, um, you know, the, 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 you know, opportunity uh, for doing, you know, paid CMEs and things like that are very few and far between. Um, so I think uh, that's some of the uh, challenges that, uh, that are faced. And uh, at, at many academic centers, including, uh, you know, where I trained and taught at the University of Toronto, um, there um, are many faculty members who actually never prescribe AIT at all uh, in their entire, you know, 30, 40 year old practice. And there are others, like you said, um, who practice in a way that's kind of like, you know, uh, I would say questionable, like wherein they, you know, compound their own allergen immunotherapy uh, with, uh, you know, with their own little fume hoods and things like that, or sometimes no fume hood or literally in their basement. Um, so it, it is quite the wild west um, out there. Um, okay, uh, I think that's about, you know, it, unless you, there were other things you wanted to add, Pauline. Well, I'm curious from your perspective, what do you think would help move that along? So transparency um, and education there. I think, uh, you know, there's almost a educational monopoly um, in, uh, at least in Canada, at least. Um, and, you know, it's, it would be good to have not one or two people writing guidelines every single year uh, with no input from really anyone else. Um, I think that would be a big way uh, in terms of incorporating some of the perspectives of uh, Yaki, which is our European uh, colleagues, as well as our American colleagues. Um, you, you'll note that their practice parameters and their guidelines are, are much bigger and they, they try to address some of these uh, issues that are a bit more nuanced, right? For example, the dust mite thing, uh, and for example, the standardized versus non-standardized. Um, because to, to someone learning this for like an exam or something, um, you know, it, it may seem units like PNU are very scientific and highly standardized, uh, but they're, they're really not. As, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a total, you know, kind of a, a non-standardized way. So I think uh, making the approach much broader would be helpful. You know, a couple of my US colleagues and I have been, you know, very candidly discussing this and they feel that there's, you know, wide variation in the U.S. too, uh, and you know, with, uh, you know, not only allergists but ENTs and respirologists doing allergen immunotherapy, and kind of just making up doses as they go along, uh, you know, quite literally in some cases. So, it it is what it is. But uh, yeah, you know, I don't know if the solution is to have a centralized, you know, command structure from Health Canada or Health DA dictating everything. But certainly in the U.S., it does seem like there is an effort by the FDA to rein in this process. I guess once COVID is over and they have a, you know, can go back to regular business, they, they may try to uh, 
work on this. And, and interestingly, in our US colleagues, uh, both the professional organizations I'm part of are, you know, somewhat opposed to, uh, you know, aggressive uh, FDA mandated standardization, because it does actually increase costs for everyone as well, uh, you know, uh, uh, going through the whole approval process. And, you know, just like in Canada, none of these companies are very you know, big billion dollar market cap companies, they're, uh, they're much smaller. So uh, it's, it's hard to go through the uh, clinical trials. Clinical trials are extremely expensive, right? But, you know, I think at the very least, maybe they could standardize, uh, you know, using the 20 volunteer or something similar method in terms of size of wheel. But, you know, it's uh, maybe above my pay grade too. <laughs> yeah, well, those are all good thoughts. Yeah, I agree with you. Okay, very good. Thank you so much, Pauline, for uh, spending uh, some time recording this with me. And uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, you know having uh, more good outcomes with my patients. Great, thanks so much for having me.